From the home of creative writing on the internet, live and uncensored, this is Latopia After Dark. Featuring a fusion of low-down gossip and lofty debate. All hosted by Latopia's Peter Cox. Silicon Valley. It's exactly 43,200 seconds into the day. Uh, no, make that uh, 201. Uh, no, 202. Uh, 203. Oh, blue blistering barnacles. Why can't people be as accurate as machines? Uh, in Jackson Heights, New York State, if I put down 3 o'clock, I may get a double word score, but it's open to challenge, and I would like to double check with Captain Haddock first. Obscure? Well, not too murky, I hope. Keep listening and all will be revealed. Probably in the last scene, when our hero has to choose between a woman, a dog, or an aeroplane. Tough choice, huh? So, good evening, good afternoon, good morning, wherever you are. Welcome to Litopia After Dark. As always, we're broadcasting live on Ustream. Join us there if you can, and don't hold back in the chat room. It's a bit of a boys' night tonight. We're looking at boy poets, boy heroes, and boy geeks. Poet William McGonagall once walked all the way to the Queen's Scottish home, Balmoral, in an attempt to be appointed Poet Laureate. He failed. Why? Because the Queen wasn't there at the time. And are you good at systemic thinking? If your answer is yes, then you could be a nerd. Or maybe you've just got Asperger's syndrome. Or both. Or neither. I just want to be accurate, that's all. With over 150 million sets sold in 29 different languages and an estimated 30,000 games played every hour, Scrabble, the word nerd's favourite game, has a right to celebrate its 60th anniversary. And here's a conundrum for you. Which one is the odd one out? Ready? Harry Potter, Billy Bunter, just William, Jennings, Tintin, Biggles. Did you get it? It's Biggles, of course. He's the only one who's not a boy, at least not outwardly. So tonight on Litopia After Dark, we're giving you a free license to celebrate your inner nerd, uh, to join the geek clique as we ask the big question. Do boys have more fun? Here to help me answer the question are, from Fort Lauderdale, Florida, writer and lawyer Donna Borman. From England's West Country, writer and lecturer Dave Bartram. From London, England, one of the first students to be accepted for Britain's prestigious National Academy of Writing, Richard Howes. And originally from New York, but now from London. She's only been here for five years, but already she's gone through our crusty old literary establishment like a dose of Epsom salts, Jean Edelstein. Jean, who's your favourite boy hero from literature? Well, um, I think I have to pick Oscar Schell, who is the hero of um, Jonathan Safford's Four's Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close. Ah, and you had an encounter with that author, didn't you, recently? Um, well, I did. I, I ran into Jonathan Safford Four on the street, yes, and I sort of spooned a little bit. I didn't know what to say, so I chose to say nothing. You said nothing. Oh, you'll regret that for the rest of your life. Richard, do you, do you know the highest number of points that can be scored in an English Scrabble game? I don't know the uh, highest number that can be. I know the highest number that has been scored, and that so far is 1,049. Good grief. That was in 1989. Although most importantly is that the uh, highest single-term score ever was 392, and the word was Kazikhs, meaning native chiefs of West Indian Aborigines. Ha <laughs> ha! 
Well, congratulations, Richard. You're officially a nerd. Uh, Donna, um, do you know the highest... Uh, I'm talking about Scrabble. Do you know the highest number of points that can be scored for the uh, first word in an English Scrabble game? Well, I think that it was 392 um, on the Kazix board. There's also a dispute um, as to which is the correct meaning of it because I think it <laughs> also means a tropical oriole. Yeah. A group of pre-Columbian tribal leaders. Interesting. Interesting. We've already got a, a nerd war started here. Fantastic. Uh, Dave, are you a nerd or a um, Bit of both, so I'm a nerd, I think. Nerd. The word nihilism. Yeah. No, 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 it's not. It, it's a Ronnie Barker from Porridge, isn't it? Oh. Nerks. No, oh. no, I'm a bit, a bit of a geek about guitars. So, oh. yeah, I'd, I'd yeah. admit to geekdom in that department, I think. We're all a geek about something. Our guest panellist tonight, as, you, as you've heard, is uh, Jean Hannah Edelstein. You've probably seen her writing. It's just about everywhere. She's a contributing editor to, to Bad Idea magazine, a frequent contributor to Guardian Unlimited. Uh, she's written features, comment and criticism for The Observer, The Sunday Times, The Independent and The Independent on Sunday. And she's had a column in Arena magazine. I could go on. But it's a three-day weekend here in London and I'd like to get out at some point. Originally New York-born, she's now London-based. She's, she's been described as everything from the only attractive blogger to a wangsty git. Her personal blog is www.jeanhannahadelstein.com and she's currently writing her first book, which will be published in May next year. Very warm welcome to Litopia After Talk, Jean. Uh, now, I, I know what a git is. It's a pregnant camel and only worth four points. But what does wangsty mean, please? And uh, more importantly, how many points can I get for it? Um, I really don't know. I think someone actually coined that particular um, word just for me because oh. I wrote on the Guardian blog. So I, <laughs> yeah, I'm quite proud, really. Yeah, it's, it does sound rather rude, though, doesn't it? But no, no sort yeah, of specific name. It's a combination of one word I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say on the radio and angsty, I suppose. <laughs> you can say it. You can say it in the podcast. All we have to do is put the uh, adult flag up and you can say anything you want. Exactly. <laughs> so, Jane, you've been here five years and one of your first jobs in, uh, in British publishing was going through the slush pile. That's correct. Mm. So and I how was that? Mean, well, I mean, I think that's where, that's where everyone kind of starts in, in publishing, if, if they're lucky. Um, you know, the sort of editorial jobs, or in my case, I worked in a, in a literary agency, or sort of seen as the glamour roles as much as possible. Um, but of course, going through the slush pile itself is, is really not glamorous. And after about sort of half an hour of doing it, I realized just how slightly discouraging it would be. You know, I you lasted that long, did you? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I mean, I think I, you know, I had this image of me sitting at a desk wearing a nice beauty outfit, drinking coffee, and discovering the next Philip Roth, but in fact it was more, well, perhaps wearing a Tweety outfit, spilling the coffee over the pages as I sort of cried tears of sorrow at how bad most of the writing was. So. <laughs> yeah, it sort of um, immunizes you after a few hours, actually. I, mean, I, I don't go through the slush pile a lot now, but I do remember that two or three hours is about the most you can take. I remember one day seriously worrying that I'd ever, you know, that I'd forgotten how to recognize good writing, actually. Absolutely. You kind of, you, be, you become quite glazed, and mm. after a while, it's just kind of like nothing, nothing seems good anymore. I mean, there have been a couple of um, of people attempting to play pranks on, you know, agencies and publishers by sending out um, yeah. Jane Austen, for example, which happened last year, where they, they sent out, I think it was Pride and Prejudice, and, you know, changed some of the names, and then this created a big furor because none of the uh, agents wrote back and said, oh, 
you've plagiarized Pride and Prejudice, you bad person. <laughs> I'm sure everyone who got it just thought, well, you know, here's another nitwit <laughs> moving on. You know, people don't have time to sort of write heartfelt letters about yeah. why it's best to not... Would she get published these days? Um, yeah, that's a really interesting question. Probably not. She probably would be thought to be a bit derivative of, you know, Jane Austen. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, obviously, I think her work was very much of the time. I'm not, I mean, going out on a limb, I'm not a massive fan. Mm. I think it's, you know, obviously sort of contextually placed, it's very important writing, but I wouldn't say that today it, you know, necessarily has the same resonance. I'm certainly not a fan of things like Bridget Jones that ostensibly are, are knocking Jane off. Uh, off. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, you've been here five years, so um, you had some you had some preconceptions when you, you arrived, obviously, mm-hmm. which were probably informed by whatever reading or other sort of media exposure you'd had to yeah. British life and uh, particularly the British literary establishment. I mean, what what was the difference between the... The vision and the reality for you? Um, well, I mean, I think it's it's a bit more um, driven by class, actually, than I expected it to be. You know, once I, I, I think, you know, my feeling was after I finished grad school, I thought, well, what am I going to do for a career? Well, I'll, I'll go into publishing because books are my very favorite thing. And um, I got in and found, you know, there is, if, if you're not well connected, which I wasn't, it can be quite difficult to kind of negotiate the uh, you know, the hierarchies, and particularly, you know, most people have gone to Oxbridge, which I, I happen not to have. But yeah, I mean, I, I found it, I suppose, more closed than I thought it would be. Um, it's a little bit disorganized as well, I would I would venture to say. Um, they come from people who are working in publishing not being as passionate about business as they are about literature, which is probably to be expected. Oh, I couldn't agree more. You've been an extra in, in, a, in a publishing film as well, haven't you? That's true, yeah. I was an extra in The, in the Agent, which um, is... Um, was, is coming from the, the play, which was uh, originally staged at Trafalgar Studios last year, I believe, which is yep. basically, you know, about um, a writer who feels like his agent isn't doing enough work for him, and so kind of what comes out of that. I mean, it, it's an interesting an interesting play and film because it's written very much from the perspective of the sort of unhappy writer, so the agent doesn't exactly get a very, a very good deal. Um, Whereas, because I've you know I've worked in an agency and, and sort of familiar with the work that agents do, I think I'm a bit more sympathetic towards them. Oh, anyway, nice it was quite fun to be a change. film, obviously, that um, you know was portraying a world that I had actually been in myself in real life. And now you've crossed over. You've um, you, you've stopped working on on the dark side. You've come over to the good side, and you've got yourself your first book deal. Yeah. Uh, it's going to yeah. be going to mm-hmm. be published next year. Uh, and you're very keen on sort of short form too, aren't you? You're a great um, yeah, advocate of novella. I mean, I think it's. Well, I mean, <laughs> now I'm, I think my book's probably going to be about seventy or eighty thousand words because it's it's um, nonfiction. So I think that's a slightly different uh, kettle of fish. But I think in terms of fiction, I'm really interested to see how you know the kind of sh- both short fiction and novellas that are that people are writing right now. Because I think a lot a lot of good writers hear from their agents or publishers, oh well, you know, possible to sell short fiction right now. It's impossible to sell novellas. Whereas, I mean, myself as a reader, some of my very favorite books are really short because I think if a writer can really, you know, write something that's that sharp and that mm. tightly wound, then it's more satisfying sometimes than an 800-page book, which yes. maybe, you know, goes on longer than it needs to. Yeah. So, but, I mean, I think it's kind of a marketing issue that people aren't really um, promoting those sort of shorter forms as, as, as maybe they could. In The Independent this week... Um Arifa Akbar reports that the Queen is being asked to appoint the first female poet laureate 
after after 22 men in 340 years. Ever since the royal household, Aretha Wright's crowned John Dryden as the first poet laureate in 1668. The honour has been bestowed on men of letters from William Wordsworth to Ted Hughes. No woman has ever held the position. But now, organisers of one of the most significant poetry festivals have decided the wait for a female laureate has been long enough. Chloe Garner, director of the Ledbury Poetry Festival, has made an impassioned call for the appointment of a female poet laureate to redress the imbalance in the 22 male laureates chosen over three centuries. Uh, From the ancient Greek poet Sappho onwards, women have often been drawn to poetry as an art form, uh, says Chloe. Women's contribution to poetry has been consistently undervalued, as with all art forms, and there's been... Um, such female giants of poetry, and she goes on to mention Sylvia Plath, Christina Rossetti, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, and so on. Um, there's never been a female poet laureate. There have been female monarchs for centuries. There's been a female prime minister, she points out, in Britain, and a female currently running for president in America. Women are beginning to wonder why, when prestigious roles such as poet laureate are being handed out, one sex is consistently left empty-handed, Miss Garner says. So, um... I mean, is there any explanation for this other than than the obvious one, do we think, Donna? Uh, I think it's just pure sexism. It does sound like that, doesn't it? We're ahead of you. We are ahead of you on the female poet laureate, but we can't get a woman president to save our lives, so I guess I just can't say anything. Um, Yeah, I mean, it's... uh... I mean, the, the unfortunate thing about a thing like this is that, who, you know, if a woman, is, um, a movement like this, is if a woman is now made poet laureate, it'll be, oh, remember, she was poet laureate, not because she was a good poet. Yes, <laughs> but because she's a woman. It's a, you know, it's a shame that it becomes that kind of, you know, it will be turned into tokenism. And, you know, and then there's also, the, I don't know, I guess also the question then, if, you know, if we're, com- if, if we're concerned about having a, a, a female poet laureate, then... Obviously, like people can get you know divided up into very small categories in terms of well, there's never been a poet laureate who's like me, a 26 year old woman with brown hair from New York. So, and you just know the newspapers are going to go wild, don't you? They're going to go into the female poet laureate sex life, probably. Well, of course, <laughs> it's yeah, possible. absolutely. I'm sure they'll be trying to take indecent photos of her, you know, in a line. Um, Dave, any any uh, volunteer suggestions for the the first? Candidate, living or dead? Oh, it's difficult because poetry, it's a man's game, isn't it, really? Well, apparently so, yes. (laughs) Apparently apparently women don't have what it takes, yes. No, leave the easy stuff like running countries and being monarchs. There's never been any good female poets. Leave leave them all that stuff. The the hard men. You need hard men to to do poetry. Hard men, hard words. Mm. Yeah, you know, I I don't think women could cut it, really. It's tough up there, I think. (laughs) Hard. So I wouldn't know. I don't know. I think I think Margaret Thatcher, as she descends into full-blown senility, would be the ideal. First she could one. quite surreal, actually, couldn't she? She could come up with some be, extraordinary stuff, probably. You'd get word salad. It would be. Yeah. It would be like David Bowie in the seventies, you know, <laughs> cutting up lines of po- of lyrics just to make up songs that worked. It would be great. Well, there's a new career for her. Uh, Hillary Clinton. I think because she's she's going to do so badly now against Barack Obama that that we should just give her the uh, poet laureate. <laughs> At least then her sex life is already out there, so hmm. all that of it now, I, I don't know. I, I wouldn't like to go into that. Or maybe we could just opt for uh, Jerry Halliwell. Uh, I know that she likes that, to... That's stick. actually a really good idea. Oh, I didn't expect anyone to agree with me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I'm just, I'm fascinated by Jerry Halliwell, because, you know, she's just given up her, her singing career to become a writer of books. Yeah. I don't think we can really term it as giving up her her singing career as so much as people forcing her out yeah, as, as, as stopping when people bo- to- stop buying her records would be close to the market. Yeah, we, we've you know we, we've already on previous shows uh, sort of very, hugely expanded the definition of a writer or what a writer is. I mean, to be a writer, you don't actually have to put the words down. You know, that's, that's the boring part. There's no there's no shortage of candidates. 
Um, Arif Rakbar mentions um, a, a lot of uh, possible people uh, living. Caroline Duffy, of course. Uh, Wendy Cope, quite possibly. I, I, that would be my favourite, actually. Book is favourite, I'd say. Lavinia Greenlaw, Jackie Kay, Fleur Adcock, Ruth Padel. Those are all very eminent women. Are you just women. making these names up? No, I'm not. <laughs> That's the thing. You, if you haven't heard of them, get educated. Actually, to, to be serious for a minute, there are some fantastic um, female lyricists and songwriters out there. You know, Joni Mitchell, yeah. to name but one. Suzanne Vega. Madonna. You know, fantastic lyricists. Well, yeah, if you must. Um, somebody whose name I can't remember uh, did If It Makes You Happy. Really good songs. But uh, there's That's loads right. of really good lyricists and songwriters out there. Why couldn't they be poets? Poetry isn't songs just poetry to music? It is. I don't know. Which is, which yeah. is well, I mean, maybe the whole concept of kind of having an institutional government poet is a little bit outdated, anyway. Yeah. You okay. suggest Possibly. that anything in England could be outdated? Agree. <laughs> I know it's a really bold statement to make, but I mean, I have to say, I mean, I'm actually very concerned about gender rights and that sort of thing. But frankly, like, who's in charge of poetry has never struck me as, you know, the greatest cause that we should be fighting for. Odds Bodkins, woman. Zoinks. <laughs> give, give it to Get the hands. Yeah. <laughs> now that's for um, Lembit Opic, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, one thing we do appre- appreciate is uh, dead poets, and uh, particularly dead male poets, and especially in the UK, uh, bad dead male poets. Uh, this week, um, a private collector has paid £6,600 for poems by the man ridiculed as the world's worst poet. Total of thirty-five of William McGonagall's works, many of them autographed, have been up for auction in Edinburgh. The ditties by the Tayside tragedian, as he was known, went for more than a collection of Harry Potter first editions, signed by author J.K. Rowling. McGonagall, who died in nineteen oh two, was often mocked and had food thrown at him, not in a good way, during readings in Dundee. Um, his works have been become uh, have been read all over the place in the past few days because of that sale. Uh, he wrote, uh, probably his most famous work was a poem about the Tay Bridge disaster of 1879. This is one verse from it. So the train, I can't do the Scottish accent on Eve would, and would be uh, terribly angry if I tried. So just, the train... Just add a few Ochide news. What? Just, just add a few Ochide news. All right. I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't <laughs> interfere with these immortal words. So the train moved slowly along the Bridge of Tay until it was about midway. Then the central girders, with a crash, gave way, and down went the train and passengers into the Tay, he, he wrote. Um, and as I said in the introduction, he once walked all the way to Balmoral to try to become Poet Laureate. Unfortunately, the Queen wasn't in. Um, poet baiting became quite an activity for the students of the time, where they'd encourage him to perform, and then would throw eggs and vegetables at him. Um, he... Um, Let's read you another another little verse here. Yeah, he had one or two. Um, he's, he was broke most of his life, but he did have one or two benefactors who are either did it just for fun or because they really believed in him. And one of his benefactors sent him off to New York. He wrote this immortal ditty about uh, jottings of New York. It's called "Oh, mighty city of New York, you are wonderful to behold. Your buildings are magnificent. The truth be it told, they were the only things that seemed to arrest my eye because many of them are thirteen stories high." Brilliant. <laughs> oh, oh, I did so that when I was about 13 at school and I got quite a good grade. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> we, we like this kind of thing, though, don't we, really? It's, it's, you know, it's the sort of, it's the poetry of failure. And we, we Brits like nothing more than a good, noble failure. It's almost as good as Boris Johnson's uh, poetry, isn't it? What's that's better. <laughs> mm. 
Boris Johnson is a poet of sorts, possibly written by this guy. McGonagall would probably have been a geek if he had uh, lived today. Uh, new book out this week called American Nerd, The Story of My People by Benjamin Nugent. Chronicles, um, the history of a geek. And he considers the etymology of the word nerd, um, says a report in Salon this week by Aaron Loeb. Uh, possible origins include the name of a creature in Dr. Seuss's 1950 book, If I Ran the Zoo, and a buck-toothed ventriloquist dummy dubbed Mortimer Snurd. And he explores the, wor- the world of hipsters, which uh, he says is, quote, an androg- androgynous paradise where adults of both sexes look like enlarged spelling bee champions. He traces <laughs> popular representations of nerds from Mary Shelley's Frankenstein to Gilda Radner and Bill Murray's sketches on Saturday Night Live to, of course, that quintessential uh, nerd movie, uh, Napoleon Dynamite. Um, in an interview in this uh, piece in Salon this week, uh, he's asked, uh, your examples of nerdy individuals and their endeavours are pretty wide-ranging. How did you refine your idea of what a nerd is? And he says, after spending a lot of time with different subcultures that I intuitively knew were nerdy, I figured out what they all had in common. A love of rules, a love of hierarchies that were merit- meritocratic and open to everybody. And in some cases, the affectation of rationalism, whether computer programming or math. Ham radio operators, he says, kept using Morse code long after they had to because they saw it as a purely rational form of language. That seems to me to be a common trait of the Society of Creative Anachronism and kids on debate teams and computer programmers. So nerdy, of course, is quite fashionable these days, but uh, let's try and define our terms uh, to begin with. I mean, is, is there a significant difference, do you think, Richard, between nerd and geek? Uh, I, I think so. Um, nerds, uh, I believe, pretty much encapsulate, encapsulates that, that Morse code thing. You know, they don't have to keep using it, but because of the fact they're the only ones that can do it, they think it's kind of cool. Yeah. Whereas, whereas geek, uh, as my wife pointed out, I was uh, <laughs> earlier earlier in the week. I love it when I, they do that, don't you? Uh, well, <laughs> I was just pointing out to her on the advert for Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Yep. Indy has a real torch with batteries in it, and of course, in the last films, he didn't have those. He had to rely on you know brands and flaming torches yeah. whereas in a new one because it's 20 years later he gets to have a real torch and i thought that was quite cool yeah and she just turned to me and said you're a geek mm. uh, and I, and that wasn't in a good way was it she says it was in an, in an affectionate way but i don't believe her no i don't i, I, I think you're right not to believe it <laughs> dave you've already offered a, offered a fantastic sort of uh, halfway house but do you think there's a difference between the two yeah i think um a geek actually has some kind of technical know-how, don't they? You have IT geeks. You don't have IT nerds. You have gaming nerds and IT geeks. I think nerds are users and geeks are kind of technocrats of our age, aren't they, really? You know, geeks work in Sil- Silicon Valley and made shake loads of cash. Nerds don't. They sit at home collecting comics. And smell. Smelling of yarn. Oh, maybe not, yeah. And in the case of Indiana Jones, I presume he had a hemorrhoid ring with him as well because it was 20 years <laughs> later. <laughs> well, sitting in all those cold stone slabs would you know, play havoc with a, a, a more mature gentleman's uh, institution, <laughs> wouldn't they? He'd have quite large polyps. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why he runs like that. <laughs> that's why Captain Kirk ran like that as well, I think. Why well, they just climbed up a horse. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, climbed out of a horse. Anyway, so John Wayne, big leggy, and all that. <laughs> But Jean, is, I mean, nerds and geeks are kind of cool and sexy now, aren't they? But, I mean, do you think that's just... I mean, I think the appeal... I mean, the appeal of the geek is obviously, if he's a technocrat, then, you know... I think, you know, there are there is some women, of which I'm not one, of course, um, who, you know, look at it as a sort of an opportunity for intellectual gold digging, I suppose. Well, um, you mean because they're rich? 
Yeah, they're rich and they're smart and like, what's not to like? Okay, they're a bit skinny. Okay, I'm trying to. I'm trying. I've got this clear now. So actually, nerds and geeks were com- desperately uncool and completely unsexy until they started to get rich. So nothing's changed oh, yes, at all, really. Other, no, but I mean, if we're talking about nerds as men who don't particularly have technical know-how, I mean, I find nerds. Mm-hmm. Are, you know, they're very passionate about something, and I think a lot of women assume if they find a man who's really passionate about something, be it books or science or records or whatever, or it's all about effect. getting him to transfer that passion to the woman herself. Unfortunately, it never happens, but it doesn't stop us from trying. I've always gone for smart guys, not necessarily people I would describe as nerds, but... I think it was actually good to see the smart guy uh, who won on American Idol. Simon Cowell actually said it would hurt him when he did a little bit about how he liked to do crossword puzzles. And I don't understand why. Um, I can have an intelligent conversation with a smart guy. Dumb guys are boring. So I, I don't get why they've not always been popular. I, th- I think it has to do with, um, it, it, we would have called them eggheads many years ago. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that, that, that term's gone completely now, hasn't it? Yeah, it, they, it really has, and now it's kind of dividing up into more specialized uh, insulting terms. I think there's some jealousy out there um, uh, for, for people who aren't that smart of, over people who are smart, and uh, there's a tendency to put down people that we don't understand. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm a bit old-fashioned, but you know, all the nerds and, and nerd, yeah, and all the nerds I certainly used to know were desperately antisocial people. They wouldn't go out for days on end. They smelt really badly, and uh, they'd sort of you know sleep until twelve noon, go out and spend the afternoon at McDonald's, and eventually start to do some work at six o'clock at night, and wouldn't stop till six o'clock in the morning. I mean, that's yeah, that's horrible actually. Ooh, what's sexy about that? Uh, I think the definition has probably expanded now a little bit. I mean, I'm old-fashioned. I don't know. I used to be called a nerd, so um, I, I guess maybe it's a defense mechanism for me. But um, I, I don't know. My, my brother's school, my college, was MIT, so I, I knew a lot of guys from MIT, and some of them fell in that category, but they were really interesting to talk to. Um, you could have a conversation with them about some really fascinating stuff. Well, well, well. Um, word nerds? Word nerd. I think that's a, it's not quite a neologism, but it's definitely newish. Word nerd's favourite game. It's got to be Scrabble, really, hasn't it? Piece in the Scotsman this week. Uh, kind of a Scottish theme, actually. We should have had, had Eve on, shouldn't we? Um, celebrate 60 years of Scrabble. Um, and all kinds of interesting stuff about Scrabble I never knew. Um, don't really need to know, actually, but it's still interesting. It's in, in a nerd. Uh, it's created by somebody called Alfred Mosher Butts. Alfred Mosher Butts. What a great name. Uh, an architect in the United States during the Great Depression. In 1931, having lost his job and struggling to while away the days in the small town of Jackson Heights, New York State, he decided to explore his passion for games and words, says Lindsay McIntosh uh, just yesterday in The Scotsman. Um, Lindsay goes on, combining it with his, his love of architecture, he came up with Lexico, a game played with letter tiles but no board. His patent application, uh, then approaches to manufacturers, were rejected, but he, he persevered, fired by his faith in his product. Over the next five years, he produced just 200 games, which he sold or gave away. And finally, seven years after the initial idea was conceived, he made a breakthrough and he decided to combine it with the concept of a crossword. Uh, four name changes, including ALF, <laughs> ALF, A-L-P-H, and Chris Crosswords ensued, and eventually he secured crucial business interest from a fan of the latter. Um, the manufacturer signed an agreement to produce the game. The creator received royalty for each sale. Um, there was one major change at that point, and that was to change the name to 
Scrabble. Then the chairman of Macy's got involved, introduced the game to some of his friends, started selling it, and then the thing, of course, just um, shot off sky high. Facts you need to know about Scrabble. 30,000 Scrabble games take place in the world every hour. Produced 29 different languages, and the most recent edition, Welsh. Um, when placed end, I love these, these, uh, these things that PR people come up with. When placed end-to-end, all the Scrabble tiles ever produced would reach eight times around the earth. Um, highest number of points uh, on the first go is 128 with Muzjiks, which means Russian peasants, and onwards and onwards and onwards. I'm just puzzling about Scrabble in Welsh, because how would you know people were cheating? Because it's just all... Isn't it? <laughs> it's all those consonants running together. You could just write anything. Nobody would know. <laughs> I think I'm right in saying the most popular application on Facebook is a, a you know sort of Scrabble knockoff, isn't it, called Scrabble? Has anybody played that? No, I, I, I play it all the time. Do you? I do. I, I thought they got it knocked off because it wasn't legal. No, it's still it's still running. I sort of yeah oh. have these four games going at a time. I'm actually really bad at Scrabble too, but I can't stop myself. What's the, what? What is it then? Let's let's pin this down. Let's try and try and uh, pin down the elusive quality here that makes it so successful. I don't know. I mean, I think it's probably. I mean, it's interesting because like I like it because it's it's wordy, obviously, and I'm a wordy person. Dare I say, word nerd? But I. People who are actually really good at Scrabble are actually tend to have more somewhat sort of logic and math-oriented brains because I'm always trying to sort of create nice words and say, oh, that's funny that I, I use that, whereas there, it, it, the strategy ultimately comes down to, you know, maximizing points, which I'm less good at. So. And it's always a run to the dictionary, isn't it? Actually, you're not supposed to consult the dictionary unless you get challenged. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the thing with playing it on the Internet, too. You can always do some sneaky Googling when, you know, uh, your yes. opponent might... My yes. most stupid opponent is in Switzerland, so he doesn't know when I'm looking stuff up. Yeah. <laughs> but it's okay, because he always wins anyway. Um, you're, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, we, we've actually got uh, NDSs, the little Nintendo uh, portable. Uh, and we, Gosh, uh, it's on that too, is it? Yeah, we, we've got a Scrabble game on there. We, we uh, took it on holiday to New Zealand with us and, and played a, a few games while we were out on the beach. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's nice, quick fun. Uh, and I mean, neither of us get very high scores. <laughs> you know, we're lucky if we break a hundred. <laughs> yeah, because the only thing, the only thing about Scrabble, I suppose, really that, that that counts against it as the the quintessential nerd game is you've actually got to play with somebody else, haven't you? And that's a bit of a drawback sometimes, isn't it, Dave? What are you FBS, saying about you know? Dave? <laughs> oh, it's gone. It's gone. What? It's gone. No, don't wake me up in the middle of the podcast. That's most impolite. <laughs> Stop I'm just puzzling about Scrabulous. That. It sounds like a terrible skin condition. It does. <laughs> Doctor, it's Scrabulous is playing up something awful. You've got cream. The great part uh, about Scrabble is it's easy, and anybody who can spell can play it, uh, at least a basic game, and it's good for all ages, so a lot of families can get together, and you don't have to carry around a bunch of technology. Um, I wouldn't necessarily want my kids to carry around an expensive game, but Scrabble is fine. I suppose the um, the uh, word nerds um, machine of choice probably at the moment will be the Kindle. And here it comes, Kindle warning. It's our obligatory Kindle piece every week now, just about. Our Kindle watch, I suppose we should call it. Um, on the blog, Kindleville, some interesting facts and figures have emerged, although, you know, they're kind of projected really because Amazon is still being very tight-lipped about exactly what's happening there. Um, Mark Mahaney, uh, Kindleville reports of City. Uh, which I think is a broker, is projecting that Kindle could represent a $750 million business for Amazon by 2010. It's only what, 18 months away. Um, is that really going to happen, we, we, uh, we wonder? 
Uh, Washington Post reports that, it's not a report really, it's a projection or an estimate because figures are hard to come by, Um, something in the order of 10,000 to 30,000 units may have been sold to date. Uh, Kindleville um, says that's pretty broad range, but I still think based on foreign post rates and other highly unscientific metrics, the actual number seems closer to the low end than the high end. That's a, I think that's a bit disturbing, actually. It really is only 10,000 unit shift. I mean, this is supposed to be the future of writing and reading. Uh, what's your, your Kindle view, Jean? We, we need some new blood on this, I think. I have never seen a Kindle, so I'm not totally qualified to remark on its quality, but I'm skeptical, to be honest, that readers are really going to snap up a, you know, an additional piece of technology like that. Like, once perhaps there's a sort of, you know, a usable platform for ebooks to go on things like iPhones. I'd, I'd be more inclined to believe that they're really going to take over. But ultimately, at the end of the day, I think people who really love reading love books as objects. But you know, they have been around for a rather long time, and I don't think necessarily you know recent technological innovations are going to you know cause the traditional book to become obsolete. I like gadgets. I really do. So the Kindle is pretty tempting to me. I, I, I'm thinking about buying one, but I, I don't think I would ever use it. I, I'd probably use it out of curiosity. Well, I think we should nominate you our official Kindle tester, actually. <laughs> I think, you know, I, th- I think you should do that and come back and report to us. Well, if, if I get one, I'll let you know, and then I'll give a report on it. It, it's temp- mm. what's, what's stopping at the moment? Is it, is it the price point or what? Uh, I don't care about the price, but um, I just don't think I'd use it. I really don't. Well, then, then you can mail it to me. <laughs> we we could test it around the the group. Yeah, I'm sure it'll uh, the, um, open the packaging. I mean the the sorry the economic model, of course, that uh, is being increasingly projected uh, was mentioned uh, briefly in Forbes magazine the other day, and that is going to be something along the lines, probably, of profit sharing with authors, um, which sounds interesting. But uh, there are a lot of potential pitfalls down that road, perhaps um, not least of which how much profit? How would you define profit? What's the percentage going to be? And um, what happens to all those wonderful deals that are done currently for for authors, where you know the advance is given, the author uses the advance both to write the book and to live on. And then, of course, the book doesn't um, perform up to expectations, which currently is the majority of deals. Gene, you've, you've worked inside the business. I mean, you must have seen a lot of books not earn out their, their advance. Absolutely. So, I mean, I mean in, in some respects, it's quite beneficial to the authors because it's, it's kind of like getting a bank loan that you don't have. At least they're getting some money, yeah. So, you know, I mean, it's interesting, I think. I am really glad as, you know, someone who is now becoming an author that I had the experience working in publishing because it really sort of controlled my expectations. As you know, that I'm well aware now that most books don't earn out um, and Mm. just kind of, you know, how things work. And so, yeah, I mean, it's sort of, I think, yeah, I mean, I think actually authors have a fairly good deal as as it stands right now because um, increasingly I think publishers are going to move towards not giving such big advances. Um, because, you know, it's difficult for them, obviously, to break even when they're doing that. It's, they're counting on the sort of massive books like Harry Potter or Russell Brand's biography outweighing all the chances they take that don't actually pay off. Yeah, absolutely. Um, also in sort of Amazon Strike Kindle-related news this week, yet again, there's, a, there's another piece of information here, in, in this time in the bookseller written by Benedict Page, um, about Amazon flexing its muscles. This, uh, you know, gentle slumbering giant is certainly waking up now. 
Um, Benedict uh, reports Amazon has removed from sale key front and backlist titles from across the Hachette Group, the UK's largest publisher. And online retailer are believed to be, uh, Amazon and Hachette are believed to be locked in a dispute over terms. Uh, and they've taken the buy new button from uh, certain uh, frontless titles off the Amazon pages. Amazon conducts yearly negotiations, uh, she reports, with publishers over the discounts it receives. The Hachette tussle comes in the wake of a similar dispute in January when a number of Bloomsbury titles were temporarily removed from sale through Amazon's main channel. So uh, this uh, seems to be a bit of a recurring pattern, doesn't it, as far as Amazon is concerned? Uh, yeah, it's vicious out there, I guess, is the only kind of way to look at it. I, you know, I think yeah. It's very difficult to, to figure out how this is. I mean, I do think... You know, unfortunately, that well, or because because I like bookshops, um, online sales are, are really you know it's just going to continue to kind of march all over everything. Um, it doesn't yeah. seem like particularly good, you know, nice business practice. But you know, as long as it's within the, the arm of the law, I suppose to do that. And it's just a matter of publishers figuring out a way to kind of strike strike a balance between serve, you know, being serving their authors in a you know in a in a positive way and you know. But, I mean, you know, the bottom line, unfortunately, I mean, I think we always, we like to think of, of writing and literature and publishing, you know, above other other kinds of industries. But, you know, because it's artistic and because it, you know, means more to us in that kind of emotional way. But at the end yes. of the day, it's just still a business, and so it has to operate like any other. Um, apparently, well, it's going to be 30% of all book sales pretty soon. 30%. That's a big number. Richard, I mean, this, I just think this is a, an argument made me for some kind of regulation coming in here, some kind of competition commission. I, I think so. Um, I'm, I buy everything uh, from Amazon. Um, but to hear, hear them play funky games like that with the publishers mm. to try to un- undercut everybody just so they can get their, their margins up. I, I think that's quite despicable. And perhaps the publishers should all talk uh, about setting up a rival company. Maybe. Well, that would be very interesting, wouldn't it? I, just, I don't think they ever could do that. I don't think they could collaborate to that extent. But no. it would be interesting. No, I, I mean, because we, we've talked in the past about how, you know, they've got their own website set up, but you don't go, oh, I fancy a Penguin book today. I wonder what they've got available. Yeah, so yeah. They've got to sort something out and, and burn Amazon to the ground or something. You know, just chop it down and, and sell it for paper. Yeah. <laughs> Mark Lefanu, a Society of Authors guy, uh, says it's the authors who get caught in the crossfire. And that's never a happy experience. And we, we do know, ultimately, of course, it will be the authors who, uh, who, who suffer. They are actually um, heading for a fall, aren't they, Amazon, really? Because You wonder. You yeah, do wonder. They, they, well, also, they, they've created this device where words appear as if by magic. And I think in, in one of the Harry Potter books, there was a book... Tom Riddle's diary, if I recall, where the words appeared as if by magic. So J.K. is going to sue them for nicking her <laughs> idea, and she'll clean them out. She'll have all the money from it, and that will finish she them. She always wins, doesn't she? Well, yeah. And, and, and certainly she's thought of everything. Riddle. She's yeah. going to be suing, suing Fords for using the wheel, um, everything, before long, because they're in the pot books, aren't they? There are horses in the pot books. Everybody who uses a horse is going to be sued. And she'll, uh, she'll sue the she'll, she'll, for coming up with fire. Yeah, oh yeah. Well, yeah, she had a goblet of it. Yeah. Except when you, you put it out with Yarg, of course. <laughs> that, please. That was no. it. We, we, Just, that's it. Okay, Yarg quotient reached, finished, done. No more Yarg, uh, please. Yeah. Let's see, Jean won't know what the heck we're talking about. And she doesn't need to either. Uh, moving on very quickly, not looking behind me. Uh, new Indiana Jones film, come out. Um, 
just about survived, didn't it, really? They thought it was going to get a critical mauling in Cannes, and oh, well, it, just, it just kind of scrapes well, through. Yeah. You, you want to see some of the uh, fan forums. They haven't liked it. Oh, really? Yeah, I mean, I'm, really? I'm a bit like, oh, I, I think I'm trying to like it more than I really did. Mm. Uh, it's a good oh, film. It's, it's just it's self-indulgent, and, and the big twist at the end, it, the, the last reel is... Oh, I can't say anymore without giving it away. But no, don't. Otherwise, you know, I'll, I'll lose the heart to go and see it. <laughs> it's worth it. I think it's um, worth it to go and see it. The uh, the fairly big news, not not this week actually, but I've been sort of holding this item ready and waiting to discuss. And I think it's a jolly good time to discuss it because we are talking about boys' own stuff and all that whole retro thing. In publishing terms, still very very uh, popular and successful. Maybe we could um, uh, spend a few moments discussing why that is the case. But um, Spielberg's next big one, next blockbuster, is going to be Tintin. And uh, Mark Brown reported in the Guardian uh, about six weeks ago. Um, I think I have to explain quite a lot about Tintin, or somebody has to, because um, you know, majority of our listeners to this are in North America, and a lot of people in North America don't know who Tintin is. Who is this person that um, Spielberg has spent a lot of money acquiring? He actually acquired rights a very long time ago. Mark Brown writes, uh, more than 200 million copies of Hergé's Tintin books have been sold around the world. Fans tend to be devoted, if not obsessed, by the character, his faithful dog Snowy, woof, woof, and his perpetually frustrated friend Captain Haddock, an endearing, uh, endearing drunk. Spielberg's been working with Peter Jackson, director of Lord of the Rings and King Kong, on how to bring Tintin to life. Now the production has taken another significant step, uh, wrote Mark back in the, the end of March, with the casting of, uh, of Thomas Sangster, alongside Andy Serkis, who appears, to, I think he's got a contractual obligation to appear in every Peter Jackson film, who played Gollum, of course, in the adaptation of Tolkien's books as Captain Haddock. Listering make pretty good Captain Haddock. Yeah, absolutely, you make a good one, actually, wouldn't he? Both actors spent a, a week in Los Angeles before Easter running through scenes of Spielberg and Jackson. Work begins in earnest in September with a, review, with a view to releasing the first film in 2010. Uh, Mark points out Spielberg's going to direct one film, Jackson's going to direct one film, and there's going to be a third one, no one knows who's going to direct that yet. I think they're both they're going to be a director. Oh, really? A joint yeah. directorial? Yeah. That's oh, a recipe for disaster. <laughs> they're going to be filmed back-to-back in the US and New Zealand using the latest 3D technology. Um, the the look of them, actually, is, it's going to be, it's interesting, I think, how they're going to try and achieve a sort of a comic book look. Um, big question is, is, will it work on all kinds of levels? But Donna, is this the sort of thing you can see a North American audience flocking to? Well, I'll just go to see anything by Steven Spielberg. I, I love Oh, right. Case closed then. I, I think that there, there's a lot of us out there that really believe in the guy. So I'd go to see it just because his name's on it. Uh, I think everybody loves the idea of an ordinary person turned extraordinary, especially kids. Um, it's a fantasy. We all can uh, be extraordinary under the right circumstances. So I think people love that. It's a compelling plot. Jean, did you ever hear about, about Tintin before you came here? Well, I did, but I have to confess that my mother is Scottish, and so I spent a lot of time here uh, as a kid. And, but I, I used to love him, actually. And I'll, did you? I'll often watch, well, there was an animated series on, it must have been on, I made it yeah. on BBC, I can't remember. But That was a Canadian series. Um, so, yeah, no, I'm a big fan. Although I always, you know, I cringe a little bit when my favorite books, whether from childhood or now, are made into films. So. Yeah, Dave, you're our resident. Yeah, you're so, for? Uh, <laughs> so blistering barnacles, you know. <laughs> I no, wasn't, but it's a good word, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, you're yeah I was going to say, I have a um, But uh, I've, I've never been big into Tintin. I, don't, I didn't get it. I mean, he speaks French for a start. I mean, no red blooded Englishman is going to 
Yeah, and that's even worse in a it's way. Belgium. That's kind of a French with even Not less spine, French. isn't it? Um, no, no red-blooded English. <laughs> <laughs> oh, as if again, even national stereotypes here. Um, no, I, I've never really got into it, but um, it's it's a it's a good crack, isn't it? Really, I'm sure it'll be great. Um, it's it's going to be the kind of movie where you hang your brain on a hook outside and go in to see, and then pick it up on the way out again, isn't it? But that's not necessarily a bad thing, you know. I don't think that's a criticism. There are plenty of movies that are great. That you do that. It's just you don't have the expectations, and as long as your expectations are at the right level, you'll have a good time. It's like this Indiana Jones thing. If you expect it to be self-referencing and rather self-congratulatory, and be prepared to enjoy it anyway, it's probably fine. If you expect something original and you know mm. innovative and mm. fresh, you're probably going to be disappointed. I don't. Know, I haven't seen it. I probably won't see it for some considerable time because you know we've only got steam-powered projectors down here, and they have to get the old celluloid out, and it's you know it's a different world. So it'll get down here in about five years' time, I should think. Well, I assume it's a spectacle, isn't it? Really, I mean, that's you know that, that to me is what the Indiana Jones film's about. You go along to see it on the big screen with the sound coming from behind and blasting your woofers off, and it's all sort of you know sand in your face, and you come out feeling exhausted. Well, They're yeah, such great I mean, fun. We've we've been watching them all in a row with our kids, and uh, because we were going to go this weekend, and then we had a little grounding issue, so we're not going this weekend. But uh, <laughs> not me, one of the kids. I was wondering. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You've been on that podcast again, haven't you? <laughs> Told you so, not to. Uh, yeah, so I'm I'm a little mom's a little peeved because I'm the big kid in the family that wants to go see it. Um but they're they're great fun, lots of adventure and uh, great plot twists and they are what they are. Um I, I and plus I adore Harrison Ford. So what's what's wrong with Indiana Jones? It's a great movie. Indiana Jones has been described as Tintin with sex. And basically, I think that's what it is, actually. It's sort of very, very old-fashioned retro adventure. The funny thing is, there's so much of this around. It's extraordinary. It really is the week for this kind of stuff. Writing in um, The Guardian this week, Alex Larman um, goes on about something I thought I would never hear about again, actually, something called Jennings. Jennings, he said, you might have thought that books about the English prep school system are unlikely to appeal to today's 11-year-old. Um, even in the unlikely event that they attend one, they're more likely to want to read more relevant books. Um, but he says the charm of the Jennings series is that there's a complete absence of the boring old moneyed snobbery that virtually every other school series boasts. Nobody's a lord and earl heir to a vast estate. The characters are straightforward and pretentious. And, praise be, it's funny, with layers of irony and rich character observation that stand out a mile when the books are reread as an adult, he says. Um, I wonder if I'd find that to be true. Um, now he goes on um, to uh, quote something quite interesting. The author, Anthony Buckridge, said before he died in 2004, he said, I've read Harry Potter and he's good. He depends on magic, whereas Jennings depends on humour. And Rowling, uh, points out Alex, uh, whose own work owes at least a passing debt to the tradition of Jennings and his fellows, has yet to make such a public declaration. But what are the chances, um, he says, what are the chances of Harry Potter being read and appreciated as much in 50 years' time? For my money, he says, hardly any. I think, I think Harry Potter will definitely be read and appreciated in 50 years' time, only because, um, you know, it's ultimately it's a, it's a fun book for kids about going to school, and I assume kids will still be going to school in 50 years' time, and so those that like reading will still appreciate it. And I, growing up, I loved a lot of really, you know, old books, such as Noel Streetfields was always a favorite of mine. I did read Jennings, um, E. Blyton, of course, et cetera. And so I think these are kind of ultimately timeless stories. And I, you know, I, you read Jennings? 
I, I did I did read it, Glenn Jennings' book, which I remember very clearly because when you were saying, you know, what were my preconceived notions, and so I sort of had this idea that all English kids went to these really entertaining schools yeah. where they got to, like, do horrible things to their teachers, so I was quite jealous. I think Harry Potter will, will last forever, and a prep school is, um, I don't think, different from any other type of school. I think that the reason why prep school is so popular in literature is because you get rid of the parents. And uh, I actually, there's there's actually a group of children's writers called something like Let's Kill the Parents because you have to figure out a way to dispose of the parents and <laughs> yeah. they, they can't be too actively involved. So it, it's always a frustration in writing children's books. So I think it's a nice handy plot device, really. Yeah. What about this, this wave of nostalgia dive? I mean, where, where's it come from? Do you feel any resonance with it? Yeah, I, I've been thinking about this a little bit. It's, I think the whole prep school, boarding school thing, because uh, if you go back a little bit, you had to take the 11 plus to get to grammar school and mm-hmm. you had to be of a certain status to get to, you know, if you were going to a boarding school or something. There's a kind of a, an inbuilt kind of threshold, isn't it? If we think in hero's journey terms for a minute, yeah. there's the ordinary world and then there's this threshold that may be monetary or class class-based or intelligence-based, and then there's this other world on the other side where strange things happen and, and kids run right, as Donna says, without the parents. And um, I think that's a huge part of, of the appeal. For most of us, that is a world we don't really know very well. So there's already an inbuilt kind of special world mm. situation before people have engaged with the adventure, whatever it might be. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I can't say that I, I don't know. I mean, I went to a school very similar to this this place, and I just, you know, it was horrible. Uh, oh, Hogwarts. Yeah, Hogwarts. No! <laughs> <laughs> it was just a ghastly place, you know, riddled with petty snobs. I couldn't I couldn't wait to get to get out of it, actually. I, I, I don't understand the appeal of this retro thing. But we haven't finished. We haven't finished on our retro kick. We are going to get into Biggles now. And if uh, Tintin was a little bit difficult and Jennings was even more obscure for an international audience. I don't know what on earth our um, two uh, original North Americans are going to make to Biggles. And again this week, um, um, this retro fashion for sort of children's books from the 30s, 40s and so on is in the news, writing in The Telegraph, Neil Clark explains who Biggles is. Biggles made his first appearance in the short story, The White, I have to pronounce this very carefully, The White Fokker. F-O-K-K-E-R. It's a type of aeroplane, I believe, made in Holland. Published in April 1932 in the aviation magazine Popular Flyer, of which Johns was editor. Uh, The the tales that followed were published later that year in book form in The Camels Are Coming. And uh, Biggles fought and defeated the Germans in two world wars, almost single-handedly, of course. He fought plans for a Russian invasion of Britain, and he scuffered a Japanese plot to poison Allied pilots with chewing gum and chocolates. Um, he faced certain death on countless occasions, not just to the hands of humans, but from giant snakes and octopuses too. But despite his numerous brushes with the Grim Reaper and the fact that he was a lifelong heavy smoker, he was still going strong and thwarting evildoers well into his 60s. Um, Uni- yeah, a UNESCO survey in 1963 found that he was the most popular schoolboy hero in the world. Um, Ipswich, Ipswich's chief librarian, that's in Suffolk, denounced Biggles soon after that. Um, a man who'd risked uh, imaginary life and limb to find the, f- f- the swastika as fascist, while a murder- Merseyside race relations officer called for all public libraries to destroy their Biggles books. And um, 
Neil Clark says this is complete rubbish. He says, far from being an apologist for Anglo-Saxon supremacy, Biggles, like his creator, was an instinctive anti-imperialist whose ethos can best be described as live and let live. Other races are more often than not portrayed sympathetically, far more so than the Westerners seeking to exploit their natural resources, he says, for material gain. And although they're generally regarded as children's books, as the uh, last um, author, uh, Mark Brown, made the point on The Guardian, says the quality of John's writing and the fact that he never insulted his readers' intelligence means that the Biggles stories can be equally enjoyed by adults. I devoured the adventures as a child, but my pleasure is undiminished when I reread the books today, says Neil Clark. Um, are we just wallowing in, in this nostalgia here? I mean, is, is all this sort of affection real or imagined? Yeah. I, I, I think um, it's all set up by the, the big companies to get us to buy into remakes and, and re-releases and, and rehashes. Um, why has Biggles come up now? I mean, I, ne- I never read it as a boy. The only time I came across Biggles was in the 1980s movie. And then that wasn't mm. even a real Biggles story because they decided to bring him forward into modern day through some kind of time travel randomness. Um, I never saw it. Presumably it was rubbish, was it? Well, I don't know. I was a kid. I loved it. (laughs) (laughs) But but even then, without having read the books, I knew that it shouldn't be quite like that. It should be based in World War II, which it wasn't. Yeah, nostalgia's great, isn't it? But also the flip side of that is that things that are re-released now or, 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 you know, new versions such as Indiana Jones can't meet up to our expectations because we've moved on and our point of views have changed and... You, you, yeah. you can't grasp something that, that has has fled into the past. Well, Gene, all this retro stuff. I mean, retro is still very big in, in children's publishing right now. I mean, the, you know, there is still quite an appetite that's going to change probably in six months' time. Of course, as all things do. But what does that say about us? Do you think as a society right well, now? Well, I mean, I think we have to keep in mind, of course, that adults buy books for their children. So, of course, they're going to be interested in stories that they that they recognise and that seem familiar to them. But I think we can also, you know we tend to say, oh, now everyone's into retro things as opposed to before. But if you think about, you know, all of the stories that have been retold again and again and all the sort of, you know, the different passions for various, you know, the fact that, you know, their classics are made into films, you know, hadn't have been made ever since film began, for example, Dickens stories, you know, how many versions of, of you know, Dickens novels are out there on film. So I think, you mm. know, we, we needn't necessarily sort of say in a negative way, oh, we're, we're dwelling in the past. I think maybe people are just dwelling on good memories that they have and trying to share them with their own children. Uh, yeah, I was just looking at the titles on the website there. I love Biggles Follows On. I'd have preferred Biggles Follows Through. That would have been quite amusing. But, um, no, I, th- I think it, it just points out the absolute dearth of originality in the creative industries that we have at the minute. We've got to find, we've got to dredge back through the back catalogue because nobody's coming up with new ideas. I mean, I suppose a contemporary equivalent of Biggles is Andy McNabb's Boy Soldier, isn't it, really? Yeah, it is, isn't um, it? Good point. I would have thought, same sort of thing. And it's interesting, I was just reading somewhere, I think on Litopia, actually, which is a marvellous website, you should go there, um, <laughs> about how his boy soldier mustn't kill with his own hands because the publishers don't like it. And I'm just reading uh, Mortal Engines. Uh, and oh, that's this, good, isn't it? It's a fantastic... I, I wish I'd picked it up when it came out. It's a superb book. Uh, but he lays waste to loads of people, this kid. He... I don't know how many people he knocks off in the in the case of in the, in the you know in the time of this book, but it's a fair few. He shoots missiles at people, blows them up, shoots yeah, them. Yeah, there's five of them. Yeah, he does loads of stuff, and it's great. But um, it's a very good book, I have to say. But no, I think there there is a modern equivalent. But I think there is. I think it's 
nostalgia is interesting because memory conflates things, doesn't it? You know, things are better in memory than they probably actually were. But I do think there's just a dearth of original thinking out there at the moment, full stop. A bit harsh. Yeah. It, sorry, Peter, did that upset you? <laughs> <laughs> there's plenty of original thinking out there. The problem is that it has to be paid for. In these days of writer strikes and uh, inflation, I think that it's very tempting for publishers and movie producers to go back through uh, writings that they don't have to pay so much for. Yeah, that's a good point. The swine. <laughs> <laughs> They, they reckon that the uh, the writer's strike actually didn't have any effect on the profits in in Hollywood or in the uh, in the television industry in America at all. Well, I think that's right. I think that it hurt the writers and um, maybe the audiences, but it did great stuff for reality TV, such as it is. Just pausing for thought about about the death of originality. And <laughs> I think that's probably. Yeah, I think I think there's plenty of original stuff out there. I think people just you know need to look for it, and and obviously. Um, consumers and publishers alike aren't necessarily. That's you know, it's always a little bit more challenging, and you know, it means reading more of the flush pile. So, um, but I, yeah. don't, I think you know, saying oh, there's but that's more difficult, there's, isn't it, though, Gene? I mean, saying there's less originality now than there ever has been, I think, is a little bit kind of, you know, a bit narrow, to be honest. Well, it's also, but you, you, if you look in, in, into art history, for example, you see loads of art movements that are kind of factions and schisms of, of fairly well-established ideas. And there's this, what you get to a point when you move away from accepted norms is you end up with things that are original, but are so far out there, people have to adjust their, kind of the paradigm they work with so much that it's not worth the effort for them because they lose what they're actually after in the first place. So there probably are original things out there, but the paradigm we're working in is fairly narrow. And if things that are original don't fall at least fairly close, closely to it, people won't buy into it. And I think it's like music. You know, people think about the discordant music that's come out in the 60s and the 70s. It's too far away from, you know, atonal music. It's interesting, but it's too far away from people's notion of music to really take off. And I think that's the kind of situation, isn't it? Um, I mean, yeah. I mean, I think I don't know how, you know, what kind of literature you're talking about as an an alternative to nostalgia-type style books. But... um, you know, there obviously is a lot of avant-garde stuff going on, as you said, around the fringes. But, you know, it's both a problem with producers and consumers that, yeah, that, you know, if it requires too much of an adjustment, then people aren't going to be as enthusiastic about what's familiar or what's kind of comfortable. And I suppose that explains why Jordan is selling so many books at the end of the day. People want that edge of, that, that sense of familiarity. They don't want to stray too far off their beaten track. Well, particularly when they're looking for entertainment rather than, Absolutely. you know, anything else. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you don't want to be stretched and pushed into places you don't want to go when all you want to do is sit down with a book for an hour. What is the, and let I, me just, um, sorry, let me just uh, pose a question to you, because I, mean, I, I honestly don't understand this. What, what is the appeal of the minor public school boy hero? Because that's really what the archetype we've been talking about tonight. All, all these people can be boiled down to that, including the, you know, ineffable Harry Potter. What is, what is it? I mean, you know, what is it about this, this image that seems to be so attractive? We're probably hoping he's going to cop it at some point because we, all, we all hate the class system and want the upper classes to, to you know, to, to take one for the team. Um, particularly that he's a nerd, that you, you want the nerd to get it, yeah. No, I, I, I think it's because, because they, they tend to be the, the generic 
friendly, easygoing, they're, they're down on their luck, the, the kids can identify with them in this generic fashion and then follow their adventures, you know, and, and because there aren't any parents there, it's it's the protagonist kid that, that has to take on all the burdens and therefore they get... Yeah, I think it's the, independ- the independence plays a, a huge role in it, so kind of a fantasy for kids, isn't it? That they, but it's also that, like, their parents are removed, but they're always kind of adults there to kind of make sure everything doesn't go totally horribly wrong. Yeah, but even yeah. even the the, the, the fantastically forward thinking British government is ex- it wants to exploit the Hogwarts effect and start building state boarding schools. Talk about you know the English not having you know being right up to the minute with the latest thinking. Oh, great! A fictional <laughs> book has sold really well about wizards. I know. <laughs> These people are running the bloody country, and and they have the nerve to say that George Bush isn't very bright. Really, you know, it's just mad. They've just—it's everybody's grasping at bloody straws, aren't they, about all this stuff? And I think the minor public school boy is just easily identifiable as not us in terms of you know. Thank God that Lord of the Flies hasn't just come out then. I think the child on their own in in whatever context is very compelling as a plot device. Uh, you see orphan children, you see children in boarding schools because everybody feels very um, drawn to that child and wants to see them do well because they're so alone. Um, and the reason that these kinds of stories are very compelling also is just because they're action adventure. And um, I think particularly in bad economic times, we tend to be drawn to those types of stories. I don't know. Think about the 70s and, you know, things like the French Connection and Serpico. And cinema got pretty dark it's, in the 70s and things were pretty harsh. And experimental. Yeah, absolutely. But, that, but that's not happening hard. now, though, is it? I mean, you know, if, if we say the economy is going to take a nosedive uh, even more than it is uh, safe than at least in the next six months, which is probably a safe bet then it means we're going to be seeing more of this kind of stuff, doesn't it? Well, I certainly hope so. <laughs> well, we, st- uh. we, st- we started by asking a question. We have, to, we have to answer it, otherwise we're not going to be delivering, delivering value for money to our, our dear listeners. Uh, the question was, do boys have more fun? Uh, maybe generally, but certainly in terms of literature. Um, uh, what, what do you think, Donna? Heck no. I think there's plenty of room for female adventure heroines. Yes, well, there certainly ought to be. Uh, but I mean, can, I, I can't. I can't name as many. Can you? Well, I'm working on one now, so hopefully we'll hear about her soon. Fantastic. Sounds good to me, uh, Richard. Hello. Yes. Um, yes. I, I, I think boys do have fun. Um, to to in, in interject a, a female character uh, would be uh, Hester Shaw from Mortal Engines. Good one. I guess she's she's quite a, a yeah. forward thinking. Unfortunately oh, yeah. for her, she's quite ugly. So. Uh, I, I don't think they'll be making that one into a film and, and anyone will be looking up to her. Um, Jean, the key question. Do boys have more fun? Oh, rubbish. <laughs> Certainly not. Maybe sometimes they have different kinds of fun from girls. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, that's just yeah, that's a, a, a ridiculous thing to say. And, I mean, personally, um, having an Indiana-type Jones-type adventure doesn't you know appeal to me, but that doesn't mean I don't have fun. So, there you go. Good. And Dave? Well, no one, no one has to fight the Nazis, do they? <laughs> we all have to fight the Nazis all the time. They're with us. In one way or another. So, Absolutely. Dave, key question. Boys, do they have more fun? Uh, it depends compared to what, really. Yes. To a fungus, yes. <laughs> to a rock, pretty much. <laughs> I, you know, it's, it's, all, it's all relative compared to Rick's, who, you know, sheep, anything. Uh, I doubt it. Um <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think I haven't got. A, I can't make a comparison. Not having been a lady, mm. so mm. Um, I have a reasonable amount of fun. And I think literature lives with boy heroes because 
uh, male is the default pronoun in English, so the default state to refer to is the male state, and it's actually an exception to go to the female state. Hmm. So women can uh, associate with men more readily than men can associate with women. A very reasoned answer that I've completely lost track of, but I'm sure it's great. Um, (laughs) Thank you you very much, everybody, for uh, an enlightening and enlightened uh, show tonight. Uh, You've heard from... Our special panellists, Gene Edelstein, uh, Donna Borman, Dave Bartram, Richard Howes. Um, it's a long weekend here in, in London, in the UK. We're going to be flying away for a few minutes. It's three days at rest. Chogs away, everybody. Um, tally-ho. And I say, why don't we all do it again next week? Thanks, everybody. Good night. Good night. Good night. Well, that was the show, and this is The Colophon. This podcast comes to you from Litopia Writers' Colony. The main website address is www.litopia.com. Litopia is one of the oldest and, dare we say, most interesting writing communities on the net. If you're serious about your writing, join us. Show notes and links referenced in this episode can be found on our podcast website. The address is podcast.litopia.com. There's no www, just type podcast.litopia.com and you're there. Our podcast site is packed full of useful information such as step-by-step instructions showing you how to subscribe to our podcasts using iTunes. You can also sign up to have our fulsome show notes delivered automatically to your mailbox just as soon as each show is released. We're more than keen to have your comments, feedback and suggestions for future shows or guests. You'll find simple instructions on how to do all these things on the website. And if you've enjoyed the show, do spread the word and share it with a friend. This is Peter Cox thanking you for listening and looking forward to being back with you again soon.